Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm your host, Ethan Yang, and today's guest, Professor Will Luther, is the director of AIER's Sound Money Project, as well as a professor at Florida Atlantic University. Um, his work focuses mainly on monetary policy, and if you've been on our website, you can see that he writes very prolifically on this exact topic, including some of the most impressing topics today, like inflation and price increases. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into what I'm assuming what most viewers are concerned about, and why are the prices so high? Yeah, prices are really high right now. Um, well, you know, if we're thinking about you know, why prices are elevated, there are there are two uh, conventional answers. Um, the first, the first is the the answer that you'll hear from the Biden administration. And that's that we're dealing with some adverse supply shocks. Um, Certainly, we have dealt with some adverse supply shocks. We went through a pandemic. The government um, shut down businesses uh, in some states for a couple months, uh, in other states for several months. Um, And and those those shutdowns and, of course, the the virus uh, more broadly – um, reduced our ability to produce. If we if we produce less and we have the same amount of money, then um, prices are going to are going to rise as as a result. So that's mm. one uh, explanation. Sometimes you'll hear that that has been modified somewhat more recently to focus on the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, this pushes up the price of, of fuel, and and if prolonged. Um, will push up the price of, of agricultural products as well. Um, so, so this this explanation is is morphing somewhat, um, but but we can put that under under one broad header. Adverse supply shocks are the are the primary cause of inflation. Now, the other view the other view is that we've had a, a failure of monetary policy. Um, that view says. Okay, there's there's nothing that the monetary policy uh, authority in, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve, can do to to offset adverse supply shocks, um, but it can at least prevent nominal spending from surging, um, and it hasn't done that. Uh, nominal spending uh, has been surging over the last year, and as a consequence, prices are higher today. Um, and so those are the, the, the two broad views um, that, on the one hand, it's primarily adverse supply shocks, and on the other hand, that it's a, a failure of the Fed. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to get a little bit more into what exactly are we seeing when prices are rising, because everyone's saying there's inflation, there's inflation, there's inflation. But I don't really know if the average person that uses that term can really point to what's causing inflation. So do you know, can you isolate for us what exactly is in, what prices are inflating, and how do you even define inflation when there's prices are fluctuating all the time? Well, when we're talking about inflation, uh, we're talking about the general price level or the average level of prices. Um, of course, you know, in normal times, uh, some some prices will go up and other prices will go down. Um, you know, if there is a, a um, a, a reduction in the availability of of corn, then corn prices are uh, going to rise, and um, they're going to rise relative to uh, other prices. And so, um, so we're going to get these relative price changes all the time. When we're talking about inflation, we're not really talking about relative price changes. We're talking about 
the typical price, right? What's happening to to prices in general?、Um, and another way of thinking about this is, you know, since we're thinking about the average price,、uh, we're we're also thinking about the the value of the dollar. Right? How many goods and services a dollar buys? So if the average if the average price is going up, that means the value of the dollar is going down.、Um, so so again, when we're thinking about inflation, we're not thinking about specific prices so much.、Uh, instead, we're thinking about、um, prices in general.、Hmm. And but there is a, a different spikes in different prices across the economy. So gas, for example, is really high. Um, I think we have a baby formula shortage,、uh, but there's also areas where the prices are not spiking. So, do you know? Can you isolate、uh, why exactly some prices are spiking more than others? Well, the, to the extent that some prices are spiking more than others, it's because the supply in those、uh, areas are are constrained, or the the demand in those areas uh, uh, have expanded disproportionately.、Um, but again, those those relative price changes. Um, aren't really what we're what we're primarily interested in when we're thinking about inflation.、Um, that's just part of you know the normal course of of markets working,、um, and and doesn't really have any any uh, um, long term consequence on the on the value of the dollar.、Hmm. And so even though we're seeing you know gas is really expensive these days, something that may not be experiencing a price spike right now. Because of inflation, it could just become more expensive as the value of the dollar depreciates. Well, it's becoming more expensive in dollar terms, right? So it takes more dollars to purchase those、uh, goods and services, goods and services in general.、Um, but whether they're becoming more expensive in real terms uh, um, is less clear, right? Because、uh, it's the value of the dollar that's changing.、Um, what we see historically is that.、Um, Wages tend to to lag in these、mm. inflationary periods. So we've we've seen over the last year that nominal wages have gone up, but they haven't gone up quite enough to offset the inflation that we've realized.、Uh, eventually, those wages will catch up, and so at that point, you know, prices will be higher because we've had this period of inflation, and the value is uh, uh, the value of the dollar is lower than it was in the past. But in terms of How much goods and services cost in real terms, in in inflation-adjusted terms, in terms of how many hours a typical person has to work in order to purchase those goods and services,、uh, that will be more or less unchanged, right? It'll just be the dollar value of these of these products that are that are uh, changing um, uh, in the long run.、Hmm. So it's possible that if as long as as wages start to increase at a higher rate, that The the more adverse effects of inflation could maybe be mitigated if that's the case.、Uh, well, so we need to distinguish between the short term consequences and the long term consequences, right?、Um, and、uh, you know, in the long run,、uh, that's right.、Um, the uh, the you know, to the extent that this increase in the rate of inflation is temporary, even if it means that the price level is permanently elevated. Then the long-term costs of this are are relatively low. Eventually, we all renegotiate our contracts,、um, and and、uh, we factor in the change in in prices that has occurred, and then we get on with our lives.、Um, mm. The the costs, the long-term costs of inflation, come when you have a a permanently higher rate of inflation. 
And so if that's the case, then you have to recontract more frequently. You have to change your, your prices more frequently. And so that means you have to incur the costs of recontracting and changing your prices more frequently. Um, and anytime you're incurring costs to, to deal with inflation, uh, you're not using those, those resources that you're expending to produce other valuable goods and services. Um, and so society is, is worse off as a result of that, that higher rate of inflation in the long run. In, in the short term, whether or not this inflation is, is costly or not from, from a societal perspective uh, depends on what the source of that inflation is. Now, if we were to, if we were to accept the administration's uh, view that prices are elevated today because of adverse supply shocks, well, then that's just the, the best that we can do, right? Prices are higher, but, but prices have to be higher because goods are... Uh, goods and services are are more scarce, and so the market economy needs to signal that information to uh, um, participants so that they can make decisions about how to use resources uh, for production and consumption um, that that are appropriate given the relative scarcity of those of those items. Um, Unfortunately, that supply story just isn't consistent with the with the data, um, and so the the, the cause of the inflation that, that we're realizing is a surge in nominal spending. Uh, this, the, supply, the supply constraints story just can't account for very much at this point. Um, a year ago, sure, we, could, we would be talking more about some supply constraints. Um, but, you know, in terms of the pandemic, much of those supply constraints have eased up. And in terms of uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, we're just starting to see the effects of some of those supply constraints, and, and they're relatively uh, limited. So they don't really tell us anything about the inflation that we've seen over you know, the, the last six months, maybe the last month or so, um, but not, not the last six months. Um, and so the, that supply constraint story just doesn't really work. Hmm. So if we're thinking about the costs Given that we know that this inflation is driven to a uh, is driven by a surge in nominal spending, those costs uh, result from from a misallocation of resources. Uh, you know, basically that surge in nominal spending it it fools people into overproducing, into producing more than they would like to produce if they understood fully what the dollar is going to be worth in the future. So you got some folks out there who, who choose to give up their weekend and work overtime um, so they can collect those dollars. Um, but then when they go to spend those dollars, they're going to realize that they don't go quite as far as they thought they were going to go. And actually, in terms of the, the real goods and services that they're going to be able to purchase with those dollars, they would have much preferred to have the leisure time, to have not given up that weekend. Um, similarly, you're going to have some businesses that that see customers showing up and offering more dollars and they expand production to to capture those dollars but eventually they're going to go to spend those those revenues their their profits and uh, those business owners are going to find out that those dollars don't go quite as far as they as they thought they would and they they should have charged a higher price for their products um, and so, so the costs of this surge in nominal spending, 
which which manifests in in higher prices, uh, the cost is really the the misallocation of resources that that occurs when when economic decision makers uh, overproduce uh, um, again because they're fooled into overproducing. Hmm. And that brings me to uh, I, I guess a pretty big debate that you just referenced is that it's I think it's pretty easy for most people to understand how a supply chain shocks uh, might affect the inflation, but Milton Friedman, I'm, I'm sure, and a lot of very reputable monetary economists, I'm sure you're also in the same boat, would say that inflation's mostly a monetary phenomenon, and it's mostly because of the amount of money in the money supply circulating. So can you talk us through um, how that sort of view plays into all of this and how, how that might be a better explanation uh, than the supply chain view? Yeah, so, you know, uh, Milton Friedman said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But actually, the, the quote continues on, and the quote mm. continues on in noting that uh, it's a monetary phenomenon in the sense that uh, it results when the growth rate of money outpaces the growth rate of goods and services. Uh, so we have to think about both, right, the growth rate of money and the growth rate of goods and services. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say that inflation results when you have more money chasing after the same amount of goods, um, but that implies that we can also get inflation when you have the same amount of money chasing after fewer goods. Uh, that would also push prices up. The difference between those two scenarios, though, is that uh, an increase in the growth rate of money can be permanent. That is, the, the central bank can decide to allow the, the money supply to grow more rapidly permanently. And so that would tend to, um, to cause a permanent increase in the rate of inflation. But when we're looking at supply constraints, adverse supply shocks, those shocks tend to be temporary. The pandemic is a, a good example. Um, you know, the pandemic reduced our ability to produce valuable goods and services. Uh, for a few months there, we, we were concerned about our safety and so a little less inclined to, to work with others. We faced some uh, regulations, um, prohibitions on our, on our business activity. And, and while those fears and, and those prohibitions were in place, our ability to produce was reduced. But those fears didn't last forever, and the prohibitions didn't last forever either. And when, when those constraints relaxed, then we were able to produce more or less as many goods and services as we were prior to that adverse supply shock. So what happens to output and prices over the, the course of, of a pandemic if, if you don't have a surge in nominal spending? Well, as our ability to produce declines, output falls and prices rise. And once those constraints uh, ease up, uh, output recovers and prices decline back to where they otherwise would have been. And so in that case, this temporary supply disturbance calls a, causes a, a temporary change in prices, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause prices to become permanently elevated. Uh, and it certainly doesn't cause the rate of inflation to become permanently higher. Um, in order to, to see those uh, um, prices remain permanently elevated, we would need either a, a permanent change in the supply of money um, or a, a permanent reduction in our ability to produce goods and services. 
Uh, I don't think that anyone is seriously arguing that the pandemic has significantly reduced our ability to produce forever. <laughs> um, so no reason to think that prices would be elevated. Um, and, and in terms of having a higher rate of inflation, what's required is, is even more on the, on the production front. Not only would we need to argue that supply constraints have reduced our ability to produce, but they continuously reduce our ability to produce each period into the future. Um, and so then as we produced less and less and less, prices would go higher and higher and higher. We would have a higher rate of inflation. Again, I, uh, that, that seems implausible. Um, uh, you, you, uh, it seems certainly reasonable to think that we had a, a temporary reduction in our ability to produce, which would temporarily raise prices. You might reasonably argue that there is some lasting effect of this pandemic, um, some, some production that will just never return. Um, and so this will have a, a permanent level effect on um, output. But it would be pretty small. <laughs> mm. um, and so uh, uh, correspondingly, it would result in prices being slightly higher, along, you know, along a slightly higher growth path than they were previously but not growing at a faster rate. <laughs> um, mm. that's, that's just inconsistent with that, um, you know, with a, a supply shock narrative under um, reasonable assumptions about the nature of that shock. Mm. And so I, I, think, I think the motivations behind the supply shock thesis are pretty clear in a sense that it places, it shifts blame away from the administration and onto the more general public, general economy. So I guess that brings us to the question of everyone's asking, whose fault is it, right? You see stickers on the gas station with Joe Biden's, you know, I did that, right? It's a running joke these days. Uh, some people might point to the Trump administration printing so much money. So where, where do you think the, the blame needs to be shifted? I'm sure it could be shared by both administrations. But where do you really see the story start to develop about inflation today? Yeah, I think that we need to recognize that in the United States, the institution that has a mandate from Congress to provide price stability is the Federal Reserve. And so regardless of, of what the Trump administration or the Biden administration is doing, it is ultimately the Fed's responsibility to ensure that we have that nominal stability. And we don't have that nominal stability, which means the Fed is to blame for uh, not not providing that nominal stability. Um, now we we can we can extend some grace to the Fed. Uh, they, what they're trying to do is a difficult task, and we should recognize those difficulties in apportioning that blame. Um, and it will you know doing so will also enable us to be a little more precise about when they are more deserving of blame, uh, when, when um, their excuses don't hold up. So if you were to go back you know, to the, you know, the beginning of the pandemic and, and just look across the time series uh, over the, the first six months of the pandemic, what you would see in that period is actually a huge decline in nominal spending and uh, correspondingly, a fall in 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 prices. Uh, this was also a, a shortcoming of the of the Fed, a failure of the Fed. Uh, it provided to to stabilize nominal spending in in that it let nominal spending collapse. But it was a relatively short-lived problem. They stepped in and uh, accommodated the the huge increase in the demand to hold money, 
And if you would have asked me in in January of 2021, I would have said, well, it's uh, you know, unfortunately, they let nominal spending contract a bit, but given the difficulties of conducting policy in real time, uh, I, at least on the monetary front, I, I think they did a, a, a good job. They did a lot of other stuff on the credit allocation front that I wasn't a big fan of. But in terms of providing monetary stability up until, say, January 2021, um, you know, I think you've got to give them credit for, for dealing with that relatively well. It wasn't until March of 2021 that, that prices returned to their pre-pandemic 2% trajectory. So if you were to plot a, a, a growth path, of prices from January 2020, um, you would see prices fell below that growth path during the early days of the pandemic and didn't return to that growth path until March 2021. And even at that point, um, as prices began to exceed that growth path, I think you have to be a little slow to criticize the, the Federal Reserve. And you have to be a little slow to criticize them there because remember, we had a pretty significant reduction in our ability to repu- our ability to produce, and and our when our ability to produce declines, prices should rise, and so we we should have expected and we should have um, welcomed uh, prices to rise above that pre-pandemic growth path because that was what was requi- required given the supply disturbances. It's not really until say. Um, late summer, early fall of 2021, uh, when it becomes clear that the, the extent to which prices are elevated is just too much to be uh, accounted for by supply disturbances, especially since by that point, by say October, a lot of those supply disturbances had, had already begun working their way out. Um, and so at precisely the time when we should expect those supply disturbances to be relaxing and therefore prices to start to fall, it was at that time that we saw prices accelerating. And so that's the point where I think we need to start casting blame. Um, in, in October, um, uh, a well-functioning central bank would have looked at the available data um, and said, We've got a problem here. Um, this isn't this isn't transitory. Uh, this isn't driven by supply shocks. Certainly, supply shocks played a role, but there's a a bigger issue here and an issue that we should address. And that issue is the surge in nominal spending. Um, our central bank didn't do that. They held on to that transitory uh, uh, term for at least another month. Um, Chairman Powell. Uh, famously said on on November 30th, 2021, that he was no longer going to use the word transitory. Um, So they had, you know, nominally given up that argument, um, but only nominally. (laughs) They Hmm. continued to act as if the inflation was transitory. Um, as if prices were going to decline on their own, as they would if it had been driven by an adverse supply shock. So when they met in December, they they plotted a course which wouldn't see um, them raise their, their policy rate until uh, March. 
And then in January and February, they saw that uh, um, data that they had been projecting would be bad. They, they saw that those inflation figures were actually much worse than they projected. Um, did they revise their course of action during that period of time? No, they didn't. When they met in March, they issued new projections, projections that said they now expected inflation would be even higher, but they didn't change their plan. So, so if, you just, if you just take their words at face value, in, in December, they plotted a course which said, this is how, how quickly we should engage in contractionary monetary policy, given how bad inflation is going to be. Then in March, they said inflation is going to be, you know, has been and will be much worse than we expected. But that same plan is going to do the job. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense, right? Um, if, if the data change, you need to change your policy. Mm. You need to course correct. Um, you were wrong. Um, acknowledge that and plot a new course. Um, the Fed didn't do that. And they, they really didn't um, course correct until May. So, so a, a problem that, that should have been obvious to Fed officials uh, by October of 2021 was acknowledged later than that and not addressed until May of 2022. Mm. Um, that's, that's just unacceptable. So, so we, we should give Fed officials grace um, for, for trying to, to conduct policy in a pandemic, an unprecedented uh, economic event. We should recognize that, you know, you, you, you can't turn a, a big ship on a dime. You know, you got to take in that information and, and deliberate and, and, and make decisions. But but by October, it was it was time to begin that course correction, and and the Fed really didn't do that until May. Hmm. And so I like to talk about that course correction. As many people might be aware, the, the interest rates have been hiking in recent times. Uh, that's been causing a lot of turmoil in the stock market. So I was wondering, when it comes to interest rates, how much is enough? And then I guess how should have been done earlier, and if so. How, how much should they have done earlier? And I guess at, one, at what point do, does the Fed need to be more concerned about a recession caused by too much of an interest rate hike? And how do you think they should balance those, the two competing values of the need to in- increase rates to bring down inflation, but also that may or may not cause uh, stock market troubles that may lead to a recession? Well, it's, it's you know, notoriously difficult to judge the stance of monetary policy from, from interest rates. And uh, the reason is because um, uh, monetary policy affects interest rates in, in different ways. So an, a nominal interest rate depends on a, a real interest rate, which is determined by supply and demand for loanable funds, and our expectation of inflation. So the, the Fed can uh, affect that nominal interest rate um, either by... Um, affecting our expectations of inflation uh, or uh, affecting the supply of loanable funds by encouraging banks to lend more. Um, So if we see interest rates uh, rising or we see the Fed raising its uh, target, um, 
we don't know whether the you know the the rate that it should be hitting is is higher um, because of uh, uh, higher inflation expectations, or if it's uh, higher because of um, you know some uh, uh, increase in the demand for loanable funds, or or if it's because they have sufficiently raised their uh, uh, reduced. Um, uh, the the supply of loanable funds. Um, it's just a lot of moving parts there. Um, so, for example, you know, in in short term market analysis, we tend to think of high inflation rates, uh, excuse me, high interest rates as signaling tight monetary policy. But if we look around the world, the places that have the highest interest rates are places with. Um, very loose monetary policy, and as a consequence, very high inflation and expected mm. inflation. Um, and so, are are higher rates uh, a signal of um, loose monetary policy or tight monetary policy? Like you would, you would like <laughs> to be able to say something definitively about that. Um, over shorter periods of time, as the you know as the Fed you know contracts credit, that will tend to put. Um, uh, upward pressure on on real interest rates, and so nominal interest rates will will tend to rise as well. But to the extent that it's successful, it will also put downward pressure on those inflation expectations, uh, which push nominal interest rates lower. So it's just it's really difficult to judge the stance of monetary policy by looking at interest rates. Instead, hmm. the kind of things we need to look at are. Um, expectations of, of inflation. And we can do that by, by taking a look at bond markets. Um, so you can look at the difference between traditional treasuries and um, uh, treasury inflation-protected securities. These are essentially the same assets. It's just that one of these bonds is indexed for inflation and the other isn't. And so the difference between these two assets um, is a, a a decent predictor of what bond market participants expect the rate of inflation will be. So, at the moment in the U.S., uh, you know, since uh, August of 2020, the the Federal Reserve has had a two percent average inflation target, and we we could be pretty confident that the Fed is doing its job if market participants were expecting. Uh, inflation would average 2% over, say, the next five or next 10 years. Um, and we don't see that. Um, uh, those inflation expectations have come down since the the uh, most recent FOMC meeting, um, but they're still above 2%. Um, and that's especially damning considering that inflation has been higher than 2% over the last year, and would need to be lower than 2% in the future if inflation is going to be 2% on average. Um, so market participants um, are, are basically saying that, that the Fed is not committed to its 2% uh, average inflation target, that it hasn't yet done enough to bring inflation down to 2%, um, even, even over the 10-year horizon, and um, and of course, even if it does a bit more to get that that um, that long run spread down to two percent, um, it still will not have done enough to deliver two percent inflation on average uh, over that period because of the the very big miss we've had over the last year. 
So, so that's the measure I would look at to see you know, whether the Fed has, has done enough um, uh, so far or how much further it needs to go. And, and that measure is suggesting that, um, that the Fed's actions have been too little too late. Hmm. So I guess in hindsight, when do you think uh, the Fed should have made a policy course correction uh, given what was known at the time? Yeah, I think that when it met in December, um, uh, I, I would have been very happy if it had tightened policy in December. I think it was warranted there. Um, I would have also understood if, the, if, if Fed officials said, look, um, it looks like we're going to need to tighten, um, but we're not going to do that until February because we want to look at some more data to be sure. We don't want to overcorrect here. Um, they could have even said, you know, we're going to have a, um, you know, a, a, an emergency meeting before that if, if they would like. But, you know, suppose they wait until February. I think that would have uh, been understandable. And then when February came and they had seen that the November data, uh, the December data, the January data uh, was worse than they had expected it was going to be, um, then they either should have uh, um, contracted more or revised their plan to say, look, you know, we weren't planning um, to raise rates by more than, say, 25 basis points uh, when we met in March, but it looks like we're going to need to do a little more than that because the data is suggesting we underestimated the, the magnitude of this problem. Um, so that's, that's the timing I would have liked to have seen. And, and again, we, you know, we can debate about, you know, whether it, it, it should have um, contracted in December or in February, um, uh, and and whether it should have uh, done a little or done a lot, um, but it, it it would be very difficult, I think, to justify what the Fed actually did, which was waiting till May. Right? It made a small move in March, even though all of the data was um, much worse than it had projected, and then um, it it. Uh, didn't really course correct until May. That that seems indefensible to me. Hmm. And so you would place the vast majority of the blame for the current inflation on the basically the in, the Fed operating independent of whichever administration was in power. Um, well, there's always a question, you know, as to what extent the Fed is truly independent. Um, hmm. There there are political factors here as well. Uh, um, you know. Chair Powell, uh, his his term was expiring as chair. He needed to be renewed by the Biden administration. Um, it's at least you know possible that he was concerned that if he had taken a a a stronger stance on inflation earlier, that he would not have been renominated and he would not have been uh, reconfirmed. Hmm. Um, and so you know if. If I were in that position and 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 were thinking about you know how vocal I should be about inflation, uh, of course I would have to weigh those political considerations. That is, if you if you come out very hard on inflation um, and then you lose your job, <laughs> then you're not in a position to bring down inflation. Um, and if you lose your your job uh, on the Fed because you were too vocal on inflation, uh, what do you think the person who replaces you is going to be like, right? Mm. Surely they're going to be uh, much weaker on inflation than you were. 
So perhaps there was a just a, a shrewd political calculation here that said, look, um, I, I don't want to upset this administration, and so I'll drag my feet on bringing down inflation because uh, trying to act more quickly will actually result in even less action for the American people. I think that's a that's a, a plausible interpretation of what happened. Of course, you know, I'm uh, I'm not having private conversations with Jay Powell, so I'm totally mm. speculating here. Uh, but that strikes me as a reasonable view for for someone to to hold. Hmm. So you would say that the, today's conversation, where people are placing a lot of blame on the Biden administration for maybe not issuing enough oil drilling permits or what have you, right? That may that may help inflation on the margins when it comes to liberalizing certain regulations. But the overall picture is mostly a Federal Reserve issue. Yeah, um, you know, anything that we can do to improve our productive capacity, uh, anything that we can do to allow uh, labor markets and capital markets to work more effectively so that we can produce valuable goods and services, um, we should do those things. And, And we should do those things regardless of whether prices are elevated or not, right? Those are things that are worth doing because they're worth doing. Um, the inflation question, in my mind, is a, is a, a separate issue. Uh, it's primarily driven by a surge in nominal spending. And uh, ultimately, it's the Federal Reserve's job to, to stabilize nominal spending. And, and it's failed to do so. Um, so. So by all means, to the extent that we can improve the real economy, uh, let's do that. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's a separate issue. Um, mm. On the inflation front, um, we need to get the monetary policy right. Hmm. And so on the topic of sound monetary policy, which is a buzzword that AIER likes to toss around <laughs> every other day, um, obviously this is maybe have a resonance of I told you so, but what, what exact, we, we talk about the gold standard a lot at AIER, and that's obviously been one of the, the huge pushes uh, for some sort of, monetary standard that's backed by a hard object rather than the fiat standard. So what exact, I guess in your mind, how would being being pegged to gold or maybe a different commodity have affected the way the Fed worked during the pandemic? So when we think about like what an ideal money would do, uh, an, an ideal money would do two things. First, uh, it would anchor long-run expectations about the purchasing power of the dollar. Um, that's beneficial because we're, we're entering labor contracts and um, lending contracts. We're taking on purchase orders. So we're making decisions over time. Uh, and in order to make those decisions confidently, we need to know what the, the dollar is going to be worth in those future periods when we're receiving payments or making payments. Um, so having that long-run nominal anchor, um, some surety about what the dollar will be worth in the future is, is very valuable. It helps us uh, produce um, uh, goods and services uh, uh, at a lower cost than we otherwise would be able to. The, the second thing that we would like um, a, a, a money to do, an ideal money would do, um, is to adjust the supply in order to offset changes in the demand to hold that money. Um, If you have 
uh, a sudden increase in the demand to hold money, um, like we had in the early stages of the p- pandemic, that causes nominal spending to contract. It puts downward pressure uh, on 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 prices, and since people are a bit slow to update their expectations, it fools them into underproducing. Likewise, when you have uh, 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 a reduction in the demand to hold money, well, in that case, nominal spending picks up. Uh, it puts upward pressure on on prices, and since people adjust their expectations of prices slowly, it fools people into overproducing. Underproducing is bad. Overproducing is bad. We want to avoid that to the extent possible. And so the way to do that is to allow the money supply to uh, adjust, um, preferably in a very predictable way, um, to accommodate those those changes in money demand. Now, a, a gold standard effectively did this. Um, when when the demand for money increased, uh, the purchasing power of gold would rise, and that would give an incentive to to miners to bring more gold to the mint, uh, expanding the money supply, accommodating that increase in demand. And the process worked the other direction as well. So when uh, the demand for, for, for gold coins, say, fell, then the purchasing power of gold declined and miners uh, didn't bring as much gold to the mint as they, as they typically would. Um, and so you had this automatic adjustment mechanism and that automatic adjustment mechanism ensured that over long periods of time, uh, the purchasing power of the dollar was was relatively stable, so you had those two um, uh, those two components of an ideal money: the the anchoring of the long run purchasing power of the dollar, which enabled expectations to be anchored, and um, the you know the the mitigating macroeconomic fluctuation by accommodating changes in the demand to hold money. Um, of course, you know we should recognize that this system was not perfect. Um, in particular, those adjustment periods could be quite long. Um, so although it, it set in motion the uh, supply adjustment, uh, it took some time to dig up that gold and to bring that gold to the mint and to accommodate that increase in the demand uh, to hold money. Uh, and so um, that that money supply mechanism worked in the right direction, but perhaps not as quickly as we would have liked it to. Um, uh, that said, you know, the banking system n- knew that that adjustment was coming. Um, they knew how that base money was governed under a gold standard. And so they could act to accommodate changes in demand uh, somewhat. Um, because because they could take faith in that underlying base money regime. Today, um, that is not so much the case, right? The Fed doesn't do a great job providing a long run nominal anchor for the for the value of the dollar. the The value of the dollar is very difficult to predict in the future. That's why we don't see the the kind of long term, the very long term bonds that we uh, saw being issued under the gold standard. We don't we don't see people issuing those today because they're far too risky um, to to issue today because we don't know what the value of the dollar is going to be worth in in fifty or a hundred years like we did on a gold standard. And you know the the banking system participants in the banking system 
they also don't know how the Fed is going to respond when there is a change in the demand to hold money. Uh, are they going to accommodate it? Under the gold standard, it's going to happen slowly, but you know it's going to happen. Uh, under under our current system, it's not so clear if it's going to happen or not, uh, and it's not so qu- clear how quickly it will happen if it does. Uh, and so, as a consequence, um, you get more uncertainty during that downturn, um, which which makes the banking system a little less capable of of dealing with those demand disturbances. Hmm. Well, that pretty much uh, we're pushing up on the time for this interview. So I'd like to ask one last question, which is, uh, given the lessons that we learned from the surging inflation today, and then given the sort of insight you get you gave on sound, what sound monetary policy looks like, what do you think is the biggest lesson that we should learn from today's experience? Well, I think that the you know the typical American um, uh, should should be aware that that we get monetary problems when nominal spending uh, surges or contracts sharply. And, and so the typical American needs to put pressure on their elected officials who will then put pressure on the monetary policymakers to prevent that from happening. Um, it's, it would be great to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, if we could somehow overhaul our monetary system and and impose some uh, ideal monetary standard, um, but that seems pretty unlikely. Uh, um, instead, uh, w- what we can do is uh, push for our current monetary system to um, to, to, to 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 be. Uh, 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 to deliver something much closer to sound money than it has, you know, over the last year, uh, and and indeed over the uh, much of the tenure of of the Federal Reserve. Um, so so some marginal changes there, which begin with good ideas, um, I think would would take us a long way towards sound money uh, without requiring us to to overcome some impossible political hurdles. Mm. Well, with that, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the show and providing some really good insight on what I think is an issue that's troubling most Americans today. Yeah, my pleasure. Will Luther is the director of the Sound Money Project at the American Institute for Economic Research and a professor at Florida Atlantic University. If you liked what you heard today and you want to find more of AIER's content, make sure to follow us on all our various channels, such as Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you really liked what you heard and you, want to, and you want to support more cutting-edge research like this, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Mm-hmm.